Hello and welcome to Halftime Scholars, the series that features the interesting work of independent and emerging researchers. On this episode, we speak with Priscilla Avoyne, a researcher and consultant in feminist security studies. Priscilla's research focuses on embodied and emotional processes in contemporary wars, as well as the post-disarmament militancy of ex-women combatants. Most recently, her research has focused mainly on two specific armed conflicts, the cases in Nepal and Colombia, analyzing the political militancy of women ex-combatants during and in the aftermath of leftist armed struggles in these two countries. We explore her work mainly located at the intersection of war and gender studies in the field of feminist international relations. Priscilla, welcome to Halftime Scholars. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Hi, Siren. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you can maybe talk to us a little bit about your research journey before your PhD and what sort of work and research experience do you have before that? Actually, it's interesting because I was reflecting with this question when I read the question a bit about my past journey in getting, like, why did I end up doing a PhD anyway? I think it was a very eclectic journey. I realized I wanted to jump into more academic field because of the practical, like, practical field but also I think because I occupied like jobs before being in the academia uh, that were totally unrelated to academia and also they were generally speaking seen as undervalued. I work in different places where it was supposed to be either manual jobs or a job in the service and before thinking about doing research it was mostly like I have seen I think a lot of inequalities I started to think about how like the more like intimate and personal and the more political and global are interlinked together. Those things have been pushing me to think about my own position in all this. It has been, when I said it was eclectic and bumpy, it's also because I felt that I was getting more and more, especially gender inequalities, as I've been like seeing them and thinking about these inequalities, I was growingly associated with being a feminist and being a bit deviant for what was expected from me as a woman and etc. So I think it sort of like evolved in this way. And I started asking myself why some women are labeled as deviant or sometimes hysterical, abnormal, etc. It's a bit like this has been my journey before thinking about entering the field of feminist security studies. And it's a very like short answer for like, I would say 10 years of interrogation <laughs> of what I want to do. <laughs> At the same time, I think I decided to study political science because of that, but more like from an international perspective, like international relations. Also, at the same time, I always had road into like, I've been a dancer, for example, for 18 years. I've been like always questioning in those like terms also from the body, from the emotions and, and from the lived experience of every person that I met. It was never really, really political science that was interesting me, <laughs> I would say, because it's like, I felt like after in my bachelor degree that political science were not paying attention to the story of people they were supposed to be studying. After that, I landed, and maybe we can discuss a bit more about that 
later, but I think I landed into research more because of this practical side. And because 10 years ago, I started more working with NGOs and consultancies and then been trying to reflect on this, on these things from a practitioner perspective. I arrived to those, the question that I'm asking myself now from this practical perspective, I would say. That's really like, as you say, quite correctly, an effective way to arrive at certain destinations. So if we dive into that a little bit more, how did the label deviant lead to your doctorate? Maybe 2013, I finished my master's degree and I already had this interrogation about women that were having being involved in political violence. So for me, it was, oh, they're always labeled, like instead of being labeled as political militant, they're always labeled either as crazy women or even prostitute or mother seeking revenge, or they were always, or even like the femme fatale narrative. And it was, um, I did my master's thesis on that, on the performativity of how we interrogate those stereotypes and why we have those stereotypes for women more than for men. After my master, I started to work in Colombia. There, it was very the experience, I think, of seeing both the perspective of the victims and the perspective of the perpetrator of violence in a very complex, because Colombia has been in conflict for more than 60 years. It was, okay, wait a second, sometimes this victim position and this like perpetrator position are happening in the same body. It's the same person that is labeled as victim and perpetrator. But it was still the deviant woman that was the figure. It was still, they were labeled perpetrator of violence, they were labeled terrorists, bad women, etc. It was uh, the victimization that would be experienced by men would be completely erased because they were, it was not possible to envision even talking about sexual violence that men are uh, being victim. So it was more or less in, in 2013, so 10 years ago. So I've been working sort of in different settings where, for example, with victims of landmines, because there was a lot of landmines in, in Colombia, in detention centers with male ex-combatant, and then in research with women ex-combatant. And then I could see there was something that was always missing. And it was like this analysis of what we feel in our body and what emotions are in the transition, right? From, especially in that case, from an armed organization to civilian society. So I started to see what about the figure of this deviant woman or insurgent woman. And especially I've been working a lot with the leftist groups. So in this case, the leftist group, it's like the insurgent woman is the woman that goes against what we expect in gender norms about how women should act in society. It's a bit this curiosity about why, if, how can we leave outside the body and political science so much? Because we count the bodies. We are like, oh, a number of people are dead in this attack. This has happened. This is the war and blah, blah, blah. But then we don't like have the narration of these, what these bodies experience in a micropolitic level. I was feeling there was like this missing piece, and especially in, in the case I was the, looking into, it was the mobilization and reintegration process when we take soldier or combatant and we bring them back to civilian society, remove 
are gone from their hands and we're like, now you need to be a citizen and a good citizen because now you're not fighting anymore against the state. You have to start acting as if you were a son or a daughter of the nation. For me, it was this dissonance of like we were asking them to negate their past, their insurgent past. And then we were trying to make them adapt to some citizenship values, especially in the case of women. You have to keep your partner in the legal side. He cannot go back to fight. You have to be a good mother, now have a family, a house, etc. While like during the guerrilla, for example, in Colombia, it was a totally different view on motherhood, family, etc. Led me to think about why affect and emotion were so absent of our analysis, both of the like armed conflict, but also the transition to civilian society. Because the programs, in practice, the program are saying, you need to live the happy life now. You're demobilized, you don't have a weapon anymore, you need to do what the rest of society is asking you to do. That's what led me to my PhD, because I've seen like in practice what was not going well with the reintegration programs in terms of gender. I'm thinking about this theoretical interrogation or like critical stance, because we know also that the apparatus of peace building in international cooperation is also a very big apparatus of producing subjects, like producing subjects. Yeah, there are so many actors and actors and also concepts that kind of go into the whole peace building process. It's very interesting that you said that look at the reintegration process and the, the dual role of going from one manner of being to another normal way of being. If we can maybe dive into a little bit more into the specific research questions you asked, the methodology you adopted and process, we can maybe elaborate a, a little bit on that space. For my PhD, I, since I've been working a lot with NGOs and state agency, I felt a bit frustrated because of this vision of reintegration program that were a process of normalization of subjects. And even in Colombia, some authors argue that it has been a counterinsurgency method. It has been like there is a lot of debate on what how it is done, because also Colombia is a particular case. It's not done by the UN, but by the state. There is like this mission of verification now, but it's more of a monitoring mechanism. It's not really implementing. It's the state that, that is doing it. But, and then there is multiple different reintegration process in Colombia. After the previous one, when the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Force of Colombia, and the Colombian government signed the peace agreement in 2016, I think I want to know a bit more how we can change the practice of reintegration and integrate a view, like a political reintegration that will really actually think about what militancy has meant for those people, and especially for women and feminized bodies. I was feeling that I didn't want it to work with state agencies because I wanted to go directly to FARC women and discuss with them what has been the peace agreement for them and also why they were like, because on one side they were saying like, yes, we want to do an insurgent feminism after the peace agreement. We want to continue our struggle, but differently. We want to transform it from a Marxist-Leninist combat to a feminist combat. But it doesn't mean because we're living the weapon that we're living the struggle. And so I was like, okay, that's very interesting. And that's also 
not a view that I want to take from the state. So because I wanted to also enter in a different dialogue with the woman ex-combatant. And also I was thinking that on one side, I was also aligning with a lot of their thinking about how peace building is not working and how they want to do it differently. We always have a plan and it always, the research never really goes as we have planned in the beginning. But my original plan was more methodologically structured in terms of like, oh, I'm going to do interview, I'm going to do this, this. But in the end, I think it was very important in this research that I let the field work also talk to me. And so my initial question were about what are the embodied and emotional dynamics and experiences of the women ex-combatants? So like what is the continuity of their political militancy from the childhood to like being in the armed conflict and then laying down the weapons? Because I was feeling that the reintegration process always want them to regret their armed struggle. Then there was a lot of research showing that in different countries that they were asking them to you're not insurgent anymore. You're not, but actually the woman from the FARC, they were saying something different. They were like, no, we're still insurgent. We'll still want to mobilize against oppression. There are differences in between combatants themselves. But generally speaking, the, the peace agreement was really innovative in that way. Trying to see like these continuity and then like analyze this continuum of their militancy, that it was not something that would stop with laying down the weapon. In this militancy, I wanted to particularly pay attention to emotion and embodied process because I wanted to know what happened if you think about militancy in relationship with motherhood. What happened if you think about the motivation to enter in the guerrilla, if you think about the body, about emotions, about gender-based violence? That was mainly like the starting questions that I had obviously evolve in time but it was actually very interesting because we could like delve into like topics that sometimes are very difficult to talk but doing it from the body and from the emotions it's very different than asking like the direct questions that you risk re-victimizing also or like it's basically adopting a method that would like let a lot of space to the personal account but the personal account that the person wants to talk about so it's like I've adopted this like biographical interviews. So it's more like why you're here, why you decided to be a political militant. And then it can go in a very different direction. And some of them will want to talk about their childhood. Other, they will focus just on the guerrilla moment. Other will talk about the aftermath. But then in this moment, it appears that it was even more than I thought, like, because like they proposed a lot of emotions to delve into. Like then one example is camaraderia that was like friendship as a very important emotional attachment in the guerrilla. And it was like, oh my God, I have never thought about this emotion and all the effective consequences of being in an armed group. Some people are there since 35 years. What does that mean in terms of like affective relationships? what family means after that what you know like so it has given me a lot to think about and also link that to political militancy which is something that is not 
currently analyzed in the international standard of DDR, because political reintegration is mostly thought about as something to enter formal politics after the peace agreement. It's also because adopting a feminist perspective that I could go a bit deeper, more micropolitics of the everyday. And it's all this like micropolitics is linked to the global politics. That was more like for my PhDs, could like sort of start it to discuss with them also what they mean by insurgent feminism and then what this has to teach to feminism also because feminists are really reluctant to think about women's violence. There was very interesting reflection that we had together for my postdoctoral fellowship. I extended this question to compare the case of Nepal and Colombia. The fact that they had similar guerrilla ideologically, but also how much women were involved in the fight and how the woman question were, was in the middle of their thinking. And because it was 10 years of difference between the two peace agreements, and one was gender blind in Nepal and the other one was really gender inclusive, at least in theory. So I was like, oh, it's a very nice opportunity to reflect on long-term reintegration in Nepal and then see what about the political militancy of women ex-combatant now in comparison to Colombia and how you can see like differences, but also a lot of similarity, even though the peace agreement were very different. But it's still following this path of putting emotions and embodiment at the heart of my questions. Yeah, so that's very interesting and a really nice way to compare so putting the emotion and the embodiment, what were some of the similarities and differences you noticed in the two peace processes and the reintegration programs? The question is, to which society are we reintegrating ex-combatant? So they've been fighting for like, even in both cases, in Nepal and Colombia, they've been fighting against different kinds of oppression. In Colombia, it was really class-based. It was like Marxist-Leninist struggle, but it was like the question of the women inclusion in the combat is much more advanced than the regular army because they've been having this discussion since the 80s. After, you can have like very different ethical question about that, but there's still like this thing about the, the ideological question where really trying to think about the fight against certain form of oppression. And in Nepal, you had like the same, the 40-point manifesto in 96 was about also ending gender and caste oppressions and, you know, inequalities. There was this kind of interesting point of like comparing the struggle of women within those guerrilla groups. In the peace agreement of the FARC, what is interesting is that they, the women from the FARC, they entered in conversation with other women ex-combatants from other conflicts. They talked with Kurdish women, they talked with women from El Salvador, Guatemala, all those regions where they had accumulated history of fighting against patriarchal systems and also experiences of reintegration that did not work in so many ways. They shared similar experiences. And it was interesting because when we went with my friend and colleague Luna Casey in Nepal last year, we were seeing the same thing that we were seeing in Colombia. Precarity, for example, gender-based violence, which is something that, for example, when you talk to FARC women, they're like, how did that happen? Like how we had like a peace agreement that wanted to tackle structural violence. And now we're still stuck in the same point of like an increase of gender-based violence. We see a lot of precarity for women and still like marginalization of women ex-combatant. 
it's better than it was, but it's still something that some of the women that are more publicly active and try to do formal politics, they're always threatening and they say they're terrorists, they're this and this and that. So it's like there still have a lot of stigmatization. And same in Nepal, after more than 15 years of the peace agreement, you have still very big difference between the women that could have access to formal politics in Kathmandu versus the women that are ex-combatant in the rural area. They have much more precarious situation and much more difficult for them to be involved in politics because there is a lot of economic precarities. Is it the DDR process that didn't work? Is it the peace process that didn't work? Or is it like the political party, the Maoist political party? Or is it like all of these And then you have those kind of like similarities, even though in the peace agreement in Colombia, you had a very clear view on the structural violence. That's the thing, because the the implementation of the peace agreement was slowed down and the structural reform did not happen. So it's getting involved in this same economies, same patriarchal systems, same capitalistic views on how life should be. I think the question of like to which society we integrate people, a lot of the time reintegration is qualified as a window of opportunity. If we don't take it as a window of opportunity on the other side of the story, reproducing the same model, the same economic gender regime model. So I think there is a lot of question and it doesn't mean that, for example, in the peace agreement in Colombia, a lot of the provisions that are lagging behind are the gender one. It's like, it doesn't mean that there's no progress, but it still means that we're thinking about that from a perspective that is not really changing structures, but just reproducing some models that are actually harmful, denying a lot the political participation. Most of the time, the political reintegration is the one that is left aside. It's true for all the different peace agreements that have tried to include gender. Yeah, those are some really interesting insights. And I feel, as you quite rightly mentioned, a lot of structures are reproduced in different societies, especially in the post-conflict era, even if there are peace agreements signed or not signed, depending on the context, something that you can find across different contexts. If we move on, Priscilla, with our discussion, you rightly put an example of your PhD and your postdoc work. For the benefit of our listeners, talk about some of the broad challenges you face doing these two different types of bodies of work. Actually, this week I was talking about that in one of the courses we had here in, in Sweden. One student asked me if I was working from an anthropological perspective. And I said, I'm not an anthropologist, but I must say that I don't really know how I fit into political science. Because that's one of the challenges I had, both in uh, political science and feminist studies, I would say. Because it's like, in political science, they would think my research is activist research. So it's research that has not the same value in their view. Because it's, I've been said so many things like that it's not systematic, that it's not objective. I still keep on facing this challenge. And I think it's something that I will still continue to face. And I accept to be facing it because it poses critical questions uh, to the field of political science. Sometimes in the more like maybe not feminist studies, generally speaking, because there's a lot of very good work in, in this. But sometimes I face in feminist milieu that women are not supposed to be violent. 
it's sort of like a fear of like sometimes in feminist studies to give points to male domination and it's like the opposite i think we should recognize that it exists and there's a lot of things to think about recently we were trying to reflect on how insurgent women or deviant women are include or not in the women peace and security agenda globally because the view of women in armed conflict is mostly like a victim view pacifist view when we try to talk about this maybe you're pro-militarist so there is a tagging straight away and i think it's we're provoking question when we discuss that about what it means to think about feminism and from where we are thinking about feminism like what our privilege and oppression in this reflection one of the first challenge i would say that it's like complexifying the figure of the woman combatant and not just associating the woman combatant to a gun has been a challenge because i'm trying to research peace from a more like combative perspective because peace has been really quiet I think that's the challenge. It's okay because there is a lot of question there and it's complicated. But this has been a challenge because sometimes when they say, for example, in political science that some form of research are too militant, it's because they dismiss what we do. So it's an epistemological question also how we get to know what we know and why some knowledge are acceptable and other are not. This is a first challenge, I would say. The second challenge is researching war and post-war is a very emotional journey. It has affected me a lot in my personal life. I wrote a piece about that because I tend to, I want to work with the same participant for a long time. That's a methodological choice I made. It's much more interesting and it feels like a better retribution to the community. This has implied that I started to be friends with some of them. I reflected a lot on how I can adopt a friendship ethics in my research. It doesn't mean that you will be friends with all your research subjects participating to your research, but it also means that you will adopt some of the ethical stance that you adopt with your friends in terms of research. Then you will think about this very differently I was really feeling oppressed by the academic standards. The way I've found to challenge this bunch of emotions that comes with very difficult testimonies and also being yourself involved in those stories because you became involved emotionally in that. It's like trying to show that this does not remove any rigorous thinking or transparency to your research has been a challenge. There is an emotional cost to do that because it means that sometimes the line between your work and your personal life might not be so clear as if you're working with maybe a database, this emotional part. And working in war and post-war is also like working in settings that security is not guaranteed, neither for you, neither for your participant or people you're working with. This has been a challenge because I had had situation where we were both exposing ourselves. For me, it's a privilege that I have that I can say I'm feminist here in Sweden. But when we are in certain settings, then it's an act of speech that has a lot of consequences. You need to be very aware of this and try to work really closely to, with your research participant to make sure that nothing is closed. And on that, I don't know, like, I think for me, one of the things that was complicated and was a very big challenge is like the ethical committees. 
have no clue about that. <laughs> they have no clue and they have like such neo-colonial stance on how you should conduct research. So it makes you in the beginning super anxious because you fear you're not being ethical, but what is ethics anyway? Blah, blah, blah. And then you, you ask yourself so many questions. You try always to say, okay, no, I need to recenter on like the security of my participant, this and this and that. But sometimes it's so absurd what they will ask you. And it's like, okay, I've received no training. And I think that's part of like what we should question about the academia. It's like you receive no training in methods, in ethics and stuff. And then you learn it with bad experiences because you have to start being like, oh, I did it so wrong. Like, okay, and what do I learn from that and how I can do it better? In that sense, it has been very challenging for me. I must say that I always like trying to see, okay, this didn't work. So how can I do this method differently next time? Or is this really for, in the end, the ethics committee, they are protecting the interest of the university. So they are protecting the university. They don't want scandal for the university, but they don't really think about the human beings that are entering into, in a fieldwork setting, for example. No? And you don't have to be in war or post-war settings to experience that in research ethics. I've tried to think about methods differently since I had those experience and uh, discuss a little bit more with the people I want to research with, how we should do that. It may be more beneficial for them because to go beyond this sort of extractivist idea beyond the academia, it's such at its colonial roots. It's so difficult to bypass and start thinking differently and doing differently, practicing research differently then it's like a constant question that you have to ask yourself. For that reason, methods and ethics should never be like fixed. I've tried to respond to that challenge with art-based methods and like body mapping, map sketching, more collective interviews. We're working a lot with podcasts or co-writing with the people that I research with. So trying to think about project together, that's the way I found to do this contour, get out of this loop of the academia. Those are some really interesting and very rightly <laughs> you have articulated from the stereotype to working in post-work conditions, security-wise, and also the ethics committee, which has a very narrow way of doing things, which throws a lot of micro-ethical questions at the time of doing the research. When one looks back, then yeah, you can sort it in a different way. So it's, it's very interesting. And I'm glad that you found new ways of maneuvering or navigating through the academic space. So that's really interesting. And I guess if we kind of maybe move on to some of your current work, I believe you're in the latter stage of your postdoc at the moment. If you can maybe talk to us about where your next step is and what are some of the projects you're doing at the moment around this space. Actually, it's a very nice moment for me because I'm finishing this postdoc fellowship here at Lund University. And it's been really nice. Soon I will be able to share like a little bit. We tried to get out of the stereotypical research. And we did like this visual novel about Colombia and Nepal, illustrating my research in a way that would be more easy to disseminate podcasts, stuff like that. So it's been like really nice moment of sharing the ideas about post-war militancy of women in both countries. So now I'm like finishing this stage, little like products to finish. In January, I will be beginning a new position in uh, the Swedish Defense University. 
where I would be working in war studies, since my work is also at the intersection of like war studies and feminist security studies, then I'm going to start working on more about embodiment war. And so I'm very excited about that. I'll be continuing this work on war and post-war. In my less academic work, I, the director of Fondación Luvo, which is a feminist and anti-racist collective, in we're working both in Colombia, Canada, and also Brazil. We have been doing a lot of dissemination of our research through, we have the Revista Luvo, which is a, a magazine that we publish each six months. We have also a podcast coming soon. We have policy briefs, blogs, you know, and then we try to invest also like practitioner, students, artists in creating content about feminist and anti-racist politics. This is something that really motivates me. And I think it's like sort of my feet outside the academia, <laughs> mostly like my project working in two book projects. So that's a bit what's going on right now. And, and then I think we can give the, the audience a bit the links to those more activist uh, platforms. First of all, congratulations on your new role. And I'm sure you'll do really well and have a wonderful new chapter starting soon. And those projects sound very interesting as well. And I think it's something that comes with a PhD student or an early career researcher. These projects sometimes come from the woodwork. You don't know people. Sometimes they reach out different forums and then you, you're doing a project together. So that's really interesting. Priscilla, if we move on, in this moment, in this context, in your journey, what do you believe are some of the practical applications of your PhD work and also your postdoc work that you have implemented or you're hoping to implement or you can see that it can fit in certain spaces? Yeah, as I told you a bit at the beginning, I feel that I'm never really completely in the academia or completely outside of it. I've been working a lot in policy orientation for uh, the integration of gender equality in, or, or gender-based measure in DDR programs. I've been working a lot in trying to bring my research results to public officers that were working in Colombia, for example, on reintegrating ex-combatants. So we've been working in different like communities of practice to with police, military officer, etc., to uh, see how they can make this cultural change about less violent gender relationships. One of the implications of my work is specifically this, what have been the blind spots of DDR in terms of gender and in terms of political militancy and how we can think about that as a citizenship problem, because it's like it's something about being a citizen and being in a democracy and etc. So been working a lot to do training, so translating my research into training for people working in the DR process. I've been trying to bring the research to, I would say, Les Taylor and Francis. Uh, I think recently I've been trying to see what are the other formats that can help me to explain what's going on in post-war setting. And also because I think the this brings so many questions for feminism, for political science, for peace and conflict, for war studies, a way for me to do that and to bring my research outside of these academic writing was like to try to do it in formats that were not only academic, but accessible for a larger audience. So I've been trying to do that in media pieces, podcasts, also like in short text or like more artistic format also. So I think 
for me it's like the application of my research can be like in policy but also I think in feminist collectives so been trying to because one of the things that I've noticed a lot of the women that are tagged as deviant or insurgent are not very welcome in feminist spaces because they're associated with militancy or with armed violence and stuff so there are questions there my work can serve as like a bridge to think to talk about those things I've been trying to do that this way and trying to be a bit creative about how I do that. It's not always easy because it takes more time also, but I think it's worth doing it. It's really good to disseminate your work and find practical applications in ways other than the traditional Taylor and Francis method, which I strongly advocate. Priscilla, moving on to maybe our final question for today. Had a long journey. You're involved in so many projects, so many hats. Outside of the world of research, what are some of the things you do in your spare time? I'm really actively involved in, in LUVO in trying to make this space also a space outside the academia that can help in making gender relationships less violent. That was the overall purpose of this organization. It's for me also a therapeutic space. And I must say that I really like stories and conversation. So I think outside the academia, I like to have a long conversation and uh, with friends, food, a bit of wine. <laughs> I think that's my favorite hobby. And I still uh, do some yoga and dance because I told you since the beginning, I'm a bit obsessed by embodiment. So it comes from somewhere. <laughs> it's something that the academia never takes into account. It's like if we negate that we have bodies. <laughs> For me, it's a way to connect and stay centered. Yeah, and I recently started to do ceramics. It's really fantastic, like to do pottery and stuff like that. It's like fantastic to be outside of a computer to not and to be focused on something that you produce with your hands. And I felt like it was really, and I don't know if it's a post-thesis possibility, because I felt like during my thesis, it was so complicated to have a space outside the PhD, but because maybe of my, the circumstances of my PhD. Yeah, I think it has been this search for something that is not related to reading, writing and <laughs> Yeah, very much so. I think the, the total opposite of what we are doing right now, staring yeah. in front of a computer, is mostly welcome. And you must definitely share the website for your upcoming ceramics line. We can definitely patronize or support your venture in the future. With that, uh, Priscilla, I'd like to thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to share your insights and you know have this wonderful conversation and wish you all the best in your new role. And uh, yeah, I hope. Thank you so much. Ian. That was really nice. Thank you for the invitation. That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. Let us know what you think of the show and leave us a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. We'll see you next month on our next episode.